I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold. Good afternoon, Anteater Nation and surrounding community. I had the opportunity to interview Vice Chancellor of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Douglas Haynes, in August 2017 and former Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs Thomas Parham in April 2018. The interviews impacted me by bringing to my attention for the first time my white privilege and how profoundly different it is for people of color compared to how it is for a white man. I've always wanted to replay the interviews. I thought they were important and relevant. With the death of George Floyd and the subsequent national and international events, The time is now to listen. First, I will play the second half of Professor Thomas Parham's interview. It is at that point in the interview that we focus on race, law enforcement, and being black in America. I will then play Professor Doug Haynes' passionate assessment of why equity, diversity, and inclusion is so important. I will never forget admitting to him right before the interview that I was somewhat skeptical of the need for equity, diversity, and inclusion. His undefensive response took me by complete surprise when he encouraged me to be skeptical. I learned a lot from that interview and from both these interviews, and I continue to listen and learn today. So now, here is Professor Thomas Parham in mid-interview from April 2018. Who I am as a person fundamentally is a family man who tries to be a devoted husband to my wife, a nurturing father to my children, a supportive sibling to my brothers and sister, and a strong man in my community trying to make the community and the world a better place. That's where I get my motivation from. Wow. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and you are listening to UCI Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Thomas Parham, discuss the challenges of his life and who we are as a society. Just a reminder, this interview was recorded on April 28, 2018, just before Professor Barham left UCI to become president of Cal State Dominguez Hills. He continues to lead that institution today in June 2020. Dr. Parham, the final question, and I'm very interested in your insights. Wish we had a ton time more. The recent shooting in Sacramento of the unarmed black man. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to analyze this. You know, we have a white and black police officer. So we have police officers who carry guns. It's necessary for them to carry guns. Yeah. There's crime, you know, breaking of cars and so forth. We have a helicopter above seeing 
which they think they've identified as a suspect. He's jumping over fences. The police confront him, and he, what's been reported, that he pulls out a cell phone, but it was mistaken that they thought it was a gun, mm-hmm. and he got shot. And And the news media is portraying it as unarmed black man, and I'm, as I look at the situation, I'm like, well, God, I mean, of course you don't want anybody to get shot. You don't want anybody to get killed. But as I look at it, I'm like, well, isn't that the way it's, I have a sense of, isn't that the way it's supposed to, how it's supposed to happen? I mean, I don't, you don't want anybody to get shot. But it's like, there's a suspect. He's jumping over fences. They're breaking and entering. The cops are afraid they're going to get shot. A guy pulls out something that looks like a gun and he gets shot. Can you give any insight into how, how we progress? Because you want a community that's safe so we can't just ignore the bad guys or guys who are doing things can can you give any insight or suggestions of how how to what to do so difficult question and as i think about how to answer this what i can say for the record is I'm not familiar with all the details of that particular case. So it's hard to comment on that particular case, but let me elevate the discussion out of that and into something more broad about the need for law enforcement and safety, the sanctity of black life, and how those two collide in some ways that are sometimes supportive and some ways antagonistic. Growing up in America, I have been that black man who has said, get up against the wall and use the N-word growing up in L.A. I've been there. Stopped by walking while black. What was that? Walking while black. Walking down the street. Yeah. And people, they just kind of circle the neighborhood, get up against the wall, you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Stop while there. walking. Right, stop yeah, while walking. Gotcha, gotcha. Because you happen to fit a description. Now, I don't happen to look, last time I looked like a gang member, like a, a thug, a hoodlum or something. You know, my shirt's always tucked in me and grew up that way. But that's just what you grew up with, right. with law enforcement. So I've been where some of these kids are at, and but for the grace right. of God. Right. I am, if I, if I go around anywhere in the country, people around here call me Dr. P, and I have more degrees and letters and awards behind my name than most people have fingers and toes combined. I've been real blessed in my life. But I also know that in America, any street I walk in, if I, don't, if I take my coat and tie off and people don't know I'm Dr. P and I just put my regular sweatsuit and tennis shoes on, which I'm normally used to have, and I walk down the street, I've been on streets where people have approached me, said, you know, that you see them kind of take a double take, like, uh-oh, crossed the street, kept going, and then recrossed again when they thought it was safe. It's like, what kind of anxiety gets provoked in people when they look at someone like me? Because they don't see Dr. P with all them degrees. And there's, you know, most of what we learn about people who are culturally different in America, we learn off of television. Now, there's only three images on television primarily that are black. You're going to either be an entertainer, an athlete, or a criminal. And I gotta believe if they thought I was an entertainer or an athlete, 
they'd be coming to get my autograph, not running from me to cross the street and go the other way. I've been in hotels, the fanciest hotels in America, right? New York City, other places. Waited two or three minutes for an elevator to come, just like in the middle of the day. It seemed like it was all day coming. It probably took like a minute or two. Had a person stand there and was first at the elevator before I arrived. And then when we go in to get in the elevator, I act like a gentleman and say, after you, ma'am. And the person says, that's okay. I'll catch the next elevator. I've had people clutch their purses like, mm, let me make sure this is not a predator. You know, what people see is very different. So I say all that as context to say that it is not easy growing up in this world, in this nation, being a black man and having to be in that space, or a black woman for that matter, to be in those particular spaces. And so contextually, our readers need to, and listeners need to know that. Secondly, I'll say that I admire law enforcement have tremendous respect for law enforcement and very much appreciate the job that they do. I deplore racist law enforcement. I deplore biased law enforcement. I deplore sexist law enforcement. I deplore you know, any kind of law enforcement that doesn't live up to the standards of integrity that you know, they, they take an oath to protect. And so when there is differential enforcement on the street, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been some demands, even on this campus, to say, you know, F the police and ban that, whatever. Never would I support that. Mm -hmm. I've been very, very swift in my condemnation to say no. Mm -hmm. Because most of law enforcement does a great job. Mm -hmm. And I'm not prepared to condemn a law enforcement community who, when black children get shot in drive-by shootings, they're the first ones to go run and try to find the perpetrator. When black mothers are sexually assaulted, when black kids are harassed and abused, when, when uh, black families are robbed, when Latino families are robbed, when Asian families are robbed, these are the same law enforcement folk running to danger, not away from danger. So in no way am I prepared to indict an entire law enforcement community that provides a blanket of safety and comfort that we operate in every day. Having said that, however, it isn't just a Sacramento case. When I'm looking at Mike Brown in Ferguson, when I'm looking at Orlando Castile in Minnesota, when I'm looking at Tamir Rice in Cleveland, when I'm looking at countless of these folks, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, when I'm looking at countless of these incidents, well, these are all black folk, right, in spaces where somehow they wind up injured, dead, killed at the hands of law enforcement. When I look at uh, Abner Louima and uh, um, uh, Diallo in New York, two separate incidents, when I look at all those things over time, this is not new. Mm -hmm. The Watts Rebellion in 1965, the spark of that was the... the uh, abuse of a black woman in the street even though the social climate and conditions look good. When you look at the, the up, up arrest and uprising and rebellion in 92 after the Rodney King verdict, what was interesting about that is the Rodney King verdict didn't start when they beat him down, which is where the flashpoint of most riots in the country are. Right? It, 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 because at that point we had them smiling on candid camera when they thought nobody was looking. And the person who had the video was white. Took the video into court with the police who lied and said, 
the car was doing this, this person was resisting arrest, and they got them on video. Four of them beating him down, 22 others standing around Rodney King. And they gave a savage beating to that individual because he was black. Lied to the folk and the commanders the next day until the video came out. Then they had to come forward. Took them into court. And you want to know what real power is? Real power is the ability to convince a jury that what you see on that video is not really what you see. That's power. Power is the ability to define reality and make other people respond to that definition as if it were their own. So backing back up now to the central question about I'm not familiar with all the facts. I'm going to reserve judgment about the Sacramento piece. I just don't know enough. But I see enough of the trends that go around the country. What I see are innocent black people with no weapons being shot. What I see are innocent black people stopped and frisked because they just happen to look suspicious. I've been there. Right? At the same time, I've been face to face with a gun on the street with Crips pointing a gun in my face saying, give up the leather coat that one of my brothers had, right? Or we will blow your head off. You know, I've been in both of those spaces. So predators come in in, in all forms. But um, what I do want to hope for is that we continue and thank law enforcement who protects the safety Right and security of our neighborhoods and 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 uh, other people. What I do want to ask for is that those who abuse that trust of the people be held accountable, and that we do a much better job of training on the front side to make sure that there is not this climate of fear that exists in communities. So that every time you walk up and see a black man, you're going to cross the street because these are the same people who are getting trained. Because, because if, if they thought he was a wealthy businessman and he was reaching in his pocket for a cell phone, one of those people might potentially be alive. But because he's black and he reaches for a cell phone, it must be a weapon. Everybody black doesn't carry weapons. Everybody black is not a gang member. Even when you identify yourself as Philando Castillo did in Minnesota. By the way, I have a carry permit. The gun is in the car. I'm letting you know, right? Hands in plain sight, whatever. And as soon as he makes a move to get a license and tells the police, the police just bam, bam, bam. Tamir Rice in Cleveland, 12-year-old kid playing with a little plastic toy gun. They roll up on him, and they give the story that they gave him three lawful commands to drop the gun. 12-year-old kid that a neighbor called. And then till the video, not till the video comes out, do we find out that they lied because when they rolled up the windows and the police car rolled up because it's cold outside. And it took about 1.4 seconds for them to get out the car and blow this kid up. And they tried to lie. And, and not only that, but then the courts, in the same way Rodney King did, Flano Castile, all these places, then acquitted the officers of the peace, the Freddie Gray, the state prosecutor, indicted the police. The courts said, uh-uh. You know, that's the message that it gets sent. You know, and so... We have to do a better way to support and affirm the dignity and humanity of black life, but also all life, because all lives are precious. But we also have to find a way to hold uh, uh, law enforcement more accountable for the abuses that I think occur in law enforcement communities, I think, when innocent lives are taken when they didn't have to be lost. So that's a longer answer to your question, but I hope a more thorough one. I think it was... 
for the time that we had, I think I really appreciate your forthrightness. This is your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is UCI Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Thomas Barham, as we discuss race in America. Just a note, this is a replay interview from April 2018, right before Professor Parham left UCI to become president of Cal State Dominguez Hills. As I've been exposed to diversity and inclusion on this campus, particularly as a reporter, I've been changed. And I've come to realize how that I have a white man's perspective. I've never been walking on the street and had somebody tell me, you know, a police officer say, get against the wall. Mm. And if that happens once, a few times, and a couple more times of getting stopped, whatever, I, I've, I've come to realize, wow. See, that, 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 be like? that is the essence of what people call white privilege. And the reason that doesn't happen for you is because if the white community's kids start getting abused in the same way the black and Latino community kids are, in the same way these Asian kids are profiled, the white community is going to walk up to City Hall and demand that the mayor and the city manager do something about those police officers or they're going to take their job. That's how power works. But the only people who scream about it when a black life is lost are the black community. I've consistently said in my narratives over the years, is that one of the reasons why racism and sexism and the isms, ageism, homophobia, whatever, don't change classism is because the only people who scream about it are the victims. Sexism is not women's problem, it's men's problem. And until men decide that we're going to clean up our own house, it's not going to change. Racism is not black people or Latino people's problem. It's not Native American problem or Asian problem. It's white people's problem. And until brothers and sisters in the white community decide that we're going to clean up our own house, that's not going to change wholesale. Mm -hmm. We have to learn how to become advocates for one another across those demographic boundaries. Mm -hmm. But you're right that until you have that upfront and close face-to-face experience, people would never believe what goes on. Yeah. And even in the face of the video, like they're talking about the body cameras for police, even in the face of video, they find a way to reframe the evidence to say, no, that's not really what you see. Really? Yeah. It's interesting. Actually, I have had two and three experiences where I just, you know, it was a cop having a bad day or whatever, and I just knew back down, you know, this guy's having a bad day. And it was a traffic stop. But he just, in fact, my buddy that was in the car, he said, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know if the guy was always like that or just having a bad day. But because I don't have I don't have to deal with prejudice sure. typically sure. so when you're dealing with that and then to, you know sometimes you get tired of backing down well and sometimes you do and that that has fatal consequences yeah. too so we try to teach all our kids to do it but remember the incident of Eric Garner in New York who's on the street selling cigarettes they alleged let's assume even he was mm-hmm. at best at best I'm going to write you a ticket and a citation. Say you got to appear in court and then leave it alone. Why am I getting around you, surrounding you with six officers, putting him in a chokehold, getting into I can't breathe, and now we got another life lost, right, for something simple as that? 
why when we're in Miami, and I'm blanking on the individual's name, you remember the video, where there's a person who's black who is the an attendant for a disabled individual mm-hmm. who is confronted by the police down, I want to say it's in Miami, and as he lies down, he even has his legs and arms in the air like this, and they still shoot him on the ground. I mean, these are the things that we see. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we have to be able to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of, of cover-up we have to be able to stop. That's the kind of accountability we have to be able to impose, even as we want to thank them for doing that. Why am I an educator? It is because it's hard to grow up in a world without being infected with the toxicity of biases and assumptions that we make about folk who are culturally different. Men toward women, women toward men, black toward white, white toward black. You know, it's all intermixed in there, right? Whatever combination you want, upper class toward, you know, the, the, the working poor, whatever. But education is the great equalizer to me because it allows us to go in and and help people discover knowledge, help people uh, learn to confront the biases and assumptions they bring with them into these educational spaces. And so what we are turning out in places like Irvine at my new home in Cal State University, Dominguez Hills, are citizens of tomorrow, global citizens of tomorrow, who are, are more educated, who are hopefully less biased, who are more informed and are prepared to take their rightful place of rulership and mastery over their circumstance in the world, but do so in a way that allows them to appreciate and affirm the dignity and humanity of people who are culturally different than them. That's why we go to work every day doing what we do. And that's what I'm looking forward to doing in my new role. Dr. Parham, thank you very much. My pleasure. That interview with Dr. Thomas Parham was completed on April 28, 2018, just before he became president of Cal State Dominguez Hills, a position he still holds. I now move to an interview I did with Vice Chancellor of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Douglas Haynes, in August 2017. All right. I am really looking forward to this important, informative show today, and I also plan to have fun along the way. It is a treat and pleasure to sit down with Doug Haynes, UCI Vice Provost for Academic Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I repeat, Academic Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I know sometimes it's hard to get your head around some of these broad terms, and many times people can feel intimidated by what sometimes seems like a minefield of controversy. I am pleased to have Doug here today. Please give a warm, enthusiastic cyber welcome to Vice Provost Doug Haynes. Welcome, Doug. How are you today? Uh, Kevin, I'm fine, and I want to thank you and your listeners for having me this time. Great. The first question, Doug, is probably the easiest question of the day. I've taken a poll. No one can really give an answer to what is the difference between a vice provost and a vice chancellor. Could you set the record straight? I will do my best. Uh, A vice chancellor is a member of the senior leadership that has significant oversight over large activities on campus that are outward-looking as well as inward-looking. So, for example, there's a vice chancellor of students that's responsible for the 
student experience of our undergraduates. So that's a very large division. It also interacts, the position interacts with the wider public through our outreach and admissions. So a shorthand is the chancellor and vice chancellors, they are somewhat outward facing. By contrast, the vice provosts are more inward facing and work in relationship to our academic programs, student success, our majors and minors, our master's degrees and doctoral degree programs. And so it's about the core functions of the university, research and teaching. And that's what vice provost. Pretty much. That's the oversight. So the vice means I report to our provost, mm -hmm. but as part of the provost's office, I'm inward-facing. Gotcha. As vice provost for academic equity, diversity, and inclusion, are there actually three different offices, or is it all in one? You know, sometimes I see office of inclusion, or you know, is it, there a distinction, or is it just a convenient simplification? I think that's a really good question, and I need to point out that UCI is unusual in the United States, precisely in combining in one office within the vice provost domain equity, diversity, inclusion. Those terms mean very real things. Equity refers to creating a climate where people feel affirmed and supported so that they can do their best work while they're here. That includes our students, undergraduates and graduate students, our postdocs, and of course, our faculty. Diversity refers to compositional diversity. That is to say, African-American, Asian-American, Chicano-Latino, uh, Native American, Pacific Islander, even white. The purpose of paying attention to it is that in the history of the United States, in higher education in particular, there have been decades, if not centuries, of de facto, if not de jure, hurdles and obstacles, particularly for people of color, to participate in higher education. And so what we try to do in the office is to ensure that we have a fair, open process and really make a concerted effort to enable people to learn more about how to participate in our academic programs. And the third leg of the office is inclusion. It's important to remember you can have a diverse organization, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people feel that they are a part of something, mm -hmm. that they belong. And that's true for any organization, not just for a university. And so the office is about making UCI self-conscious, intentional, and purposeful about defining excellence by the totality of people we include in our academic mission. Excellent. How do we go about doing that? How does your office go about doing that? Certainly, it's a conversation. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can just elaborate on that and maybe point out some specific programs. Sure. That's another good question, and I want to remind you and the, and, the, and, the, and the listeners that the attention to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion is an ongoing and evolving process, particularly in the United States, where after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, public institutions could no longer discriminate, even though they received federal tax dollars. However, the real challenge after the Civil Rights Act was how do you integrate institutions that historically have had no or very few people of color? And the task has been since the 1964 
Civil Rights Act is not only integration to grow diversity, but also to create an environment where people feel that they can do their best work in an atmosphere where they're not subject to various forms of explicit or implicit bias. I think that the office, this office, is unique in that it is inward focused and it does four things. We provide campus accountability about equity, diversity, inclusion. So those terms aren't just vague concepts. They actually relate to real, measurable conditions for the success of human beings at UCI. Second, we also coordinate and provide education, briefing, and training. It's important to remember that even though we live in a very diverse society, research shows that a significant percentage of Americans live in residentially homogenous communities. We don't go to church together that often. And so you have to remember that we have to be very intentional about equipping people with knowledge, information, research, best practices about things like implicit bias, right? Mm -hmm. The schemas in our brain that allow us to unconsciously sort people according to preconceived ideas. Mm -hmm. We all are subject to implicit bias, no matter how well-intentioned we are. But as soon as we get aware of it, we're able to interrupt those unconscious biases from having an effect on how we interact with people. The third foci of the office is responsive research. Research is particularly important because we need to understand how are we doing, right? Mm -hmm. Here's an example. Most people inhabit their workspaces and places that they live, and they get a sense of their reality from that experience. However, there's been some fascinating research that shows that when you ask people at a corporation, if it's a diverse corporation, members of dominant groups take into account not just who is their peer, who's on the the C-suite, but also the custodial class. And they'll think it's a very diverse place, even though 80% of the workforce is in custodial work, right? They don't think about the fact of the relative absence, let's say, of women in the executive suite. Mm. Or if they're women executives, they're in human resources and not in marketing. Mm. Mm. So what we do in our responsive research is collect data. Mm. Data that compares the available pool of individuals with the requisite degree, a PhD, and whether or not those individuals are applying to our jobs, right? We don't tell any department who to hire, but we share data. We point out that, yes, believe it or not, there are African-American women physicists in the United States of America, right? Mm -hmm. And so one can't simply say there aren't any. Mm -hmm. Instead, we have to think about how do we connect with this talent pool? It might require being a bit more purposeful, intentional. We share data about our students, about how they're progressing through their courses, to understand to what extent are we serving them well. You can't determine your effectiveness if you don't know what your tr- constitutes effectiveness or if you don't have some type of quantitative measure of it. Mm-hmm. makes a big difference. 
So those are some examples. Mm-hmm. And it's important to remember, we may be diverse, but that doesn't mean we're truly representative. Mm-hmm. And the final leg, the fourth foci of the Office of Inclusive Excellence is strategic partners and initiatives. And that can mean reaching out to our community colleges, our campuses in the CSU system, Hispanic serving institutions. In fact, UCI has just been designated a Hispanic serving institution by the federal government, which means that 25% of our undergraduates are Latino. Now, for some of your listeners, that might be a surprise, but remember, 40% of the population of Orange County are Latino, mm-hmm. right? Close to a little more than 40% statewide. And I think that it's important to remember that we want to be sure as a public research institution that we are opening up our portals to talented people and we want to remove hurdles to their participation. And so it's pretty remarkable that nearly a third of our undergraduates are Pell eligible. That's a proxy for being low income. And I mentioned these examples to illustrate that talent comes in many forms. And these young people are high achieving. They have the grades, the test scores, the leadership experience, the drive, the dedication, the grit. And we want to be sure that there are no artificial hurdles to their participation. And so those are some examples of the four foci of the office that really try to sort of ensure that we are enabling people to expect equity, support diversity, and practice inclusion. In case you join us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest is UCI Vice Chancellor of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Doug Haynes. This interview is a rebroadcast from August 2017. Where do we need to improve? Do you see right now specific areas at UCI that where we need to improve? Is there focus? I, I think that the, the short answer is there are many areas in which we've improved, but there are as many areas in which we need to improve. And in saying that, it's important to remember that any successful organization or enterprise, whether it's an elite public research university like UCI, a corporation, or any other institution, you need to be a learning organization. You need to learn about the people you serve. You can't simply be on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And so when we are looking at student success, time to degree, what we're trying to understand is how can we better serve our students so that all graduate in four years, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, UCI um, is way above the national average when it comes to graduation rate, way above the national average. But 86% is really good, but we want 100%, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There are many reasons why students graduate in more than four years. It could be access to funds. We provide tuition-free education for individuals from families that make less than $80,000 a year, right? So that's one area. Another area is we want to access the talent pool, and that refers to our faculty hiring. You know, 
Women now comprise 36% of the faculty at UCI. Now, to some folks, that might not mean much. But you need to remember that before Title IX in 1972, women faced enormous barriers, not just hurdles, barriers to participation in higher education, even in public institutions for which their parents pay taxes. And so when we look at the data of, let's say, women in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, and computer science, you know, we want to be sure that we're tapping in to that robust talent that's out there, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why we measure our performance in our hiring against national availability, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's one area where we need to do more work. But I want to give an example of where we have a, a recent success, and that is recruiting Dr. Amawa Shields. Dr. Shields is the first and I believe only African-American female astrophysicist ever hired in the University of California system. Now, let that settle in for a minute. For over 150 years or more, since the University of California was established in 1868, no student has had the opportunity to have a physics class with a black woman as a ladder rank faculty member. Now, that might not seem much to a lot of people, mm-hmm. but physics is regarded as the jewel of the sciences, as a field that sort of only the anointed can truly understand, that you have to be Einstein in order to get it. Mm-hmm. And it's important to remember, too, that for centuries, women were represented, particularly black women, were represented as the antithesis of genius. Mm. Right? This is 2017. Mm-hmm. And UCI succeeded in making this appointment of a very accomplished early career scientist that literally has made history. Thank you. Please excuse me for a moment, Doug. If you joined us late today, I'm speaking with Vice Provost for Academic Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Doug Haynes. Doug received his Ph.D. from UC Berkeley and originally came to UCI as a history professor. His research focuses on modern Britain. He sees rather than viewing race as marginal to the history of medicine in the U.S., he argues that it was and remains central to the development of American medicine. Doug, I know this is a little off topic, but can you, maybe it's not. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. I think that in most of my research, and my research looks at the development of the medical profession in the United Kingdom, in other words, Britain, but I also do research on the development of the modern medical profession in the United States. And one thing that's striking about both of these professions is the use of barriers of exclusion in order to produce the social representative of that profession. So, for example, many of you, and I will date myself, remember Dacus Welby, MD. <laughs> I'm the, with you. <laughs> the folksy L.A.-based single practitioner who had Diane Carroll as his, well, that's a different story. Uh, <laughs> and he represented 
American medicine in 1960. And for many people, that seemed normal, that all doctors, a significant majority of them, were white and male, right? Mm -hmm. But what I study is how that normality is produced. And it's produced through the sort of system of medical education. It's produced by a system, at least up until, I would say, the 1970s, that really selected against non-white individuals from going to medical colleges and schools outside of historically black colleges and universities. Mm. And so you can imagine how over time, the overwhelming representation of doctors were white and male, Mm. in large part because medical schools in the United States excluded African-Americans or had a hard quota. They also excluded women or had a hard quota for them. This process happens in the United Kingdom as well. But the difference is, as Britain expanded its empire, it established medical schools. And that's where doctors of color were produced. Hmm. But those doctors were prohibited from practicing medicine in the United Kingdom. Hmm. And so one of the pleasures, fascinations, and I think responsibilities of my research is to unpack what we think is normal and to point out that what is normal is situated within hierarchies of power. Mm. And the hard part, Kevin, the real hard part is to understand how to see what is normal. For me, it took going to Pomona College as an undergraduate, then going to Berkeley for my PhD, and learning an awful lot about the history of power in the United Kingdom and its empire, as well as the United States, so that I can basically, in three minutes, summarize what's taken me close to 30 years. Mm. You sound, at times, more like a social scientist than a historian. There must be overlaps. Why do you say that? Well, because these issues seem to be socially norms that are recorded in history. So it kind of defines what it's all about. Well, the beauty about being a historian is that it's a wonderful merger of humanistic inquiry as well as social science exploration. And so history in some universities is a social science. And other institutions like UCI, it's in the humanities. And it's wonderful because it's situated in the humanities at UCI It's because I'm able to explore and build connections with other fields of inquiry. Hmm. Where is the, do you feel resistance? You know, as you, from what I hear is as you eloquently share Hmm. your passion and what you think is important, is there hard resistance? Is there silent resistance? You know, where's the rub? You know, as I listen to you, I'm like, This makes a lot of sense. I think that the resistance, I I wouldn't characterize it initially as as resistance. I think that one way to approach issues around equity, diversity, inclusion is fundamentally it's about power relations. Mm. I think most people, myself included, are loath 
to imagine that they exercise power in ways that impair people, that thwart people. And so part of the task is educational, mm -hmm. that you need to work with people and walk with people to sort of unpack our role in these larger structures. So, for example, one point of resistance that is still present but is diminishing is this idea that because of the passage of Proposition 209 by California voters in 1996 that prohibits the use of race, gender, national origin in either admissions or hiring in the University of California, that our hands are tied behind our backs, that in the absence of affirmative action, people of goodwill can't really affect change. Right? But the truth of the matter, Kevin, there was no golden age for underrepresented minorities. There was a recent article in the, LA T in the New York Times this week that just documented the glacial pace of change, whether it's and students, undergraduates at public institutions or private institutions. And so what I'm driving at is that it's important to, to in, meet people where they are, mm -hmm. engage them with facts, help them see. But Kevin, they have to be at a place where they're open to that. Part of this process involves dealing with the layers of interior explanations that are excuses, mm -hmm. that there aren't any. But even if you point out that, yes, there are Chicana scientists, that there is a wonderful body of Chicano literature, the next level of resistance is well, it'd be really difficult to recruit this person because there's so few and more affluent, well-endowed institutions will just take them away. Even if you prove, demonstrate, that coming to a public institution, whether UCLA or UCI or San Diego, is something that a highly talented, well-trained Chicano, Chicana scholar would like, there's yet another level of resistance. Right? They won't stay because their numbers are so few. Mm -hmm. And instead of thinking about how do I create a culture where people want to stay, instead that line of thinking puts the burden, the onus on that individual to make all the adjustments. Mm -hmm. And so these are just some examples mm -hmm. And these are examples not of fire-breathing white supremacists. These aren't the rationales of neo-Nazis. These aren't the views of white nationalists. These are the views of well-meaning people mm -hmm. who see themselves as well-meaning, even progressive, highly educated. Mm -hmm. But even this subset of people need to be at a place to interrogate their own biases. Mm -hmm. And so part of my work involves accountability, education and training, responsive research, strategic partnerships, to enable people both to sort of 
participate in inclusive excellence, mm-hmm. right? And I think that there's a lot of positive momentum, right? Professor Haynes, Dr. Haynes, Vice Provost, thank you so much for being here today. You have represented what UCI is trying to do and the work is not done yet Mm -hmm. and you have done it exceptionally well I want to commend you Mm -hmm. Uh, I told you before you came here or before we started the interview that sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't (laughs) and you have succeeded in helping me to make it makes a lot more sense to me now and I feel like I have a much clearer grasp of what's being worked on at UCI. So I I thank you very much for being here today. Well, thank you, Kevin, and your listeners for having me. That was UCI Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Doug Haynes, from an August 2017 interview. In the Sunday, June 14, 2020, Orange County Register newspaper editorial page, Doug had an article published entitled Race, Why Black Americans Fear Police. I thank Professor Haynes and Cal State Dominguez Hills President, former UCI Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs, Thomas Parham, for their interviews that were rebroadcast today. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.